2: Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with the resident. Hotels where guests can expect a relaxed, warm, and welcoming atmosphere. And you can get that from this podcast, too, in fact. An exceptional experience awaits at the resident city centre locations and from this Whitehall Sources podcast, which starts now.
1: I can understand why the Prime Minister's trying to wish away his terrible
2: results, but peddling nonsense just doesn't work. I know he's asked his Labour councillors rightly to focus on the cost of living. Perhaps they could start with reducing council tax to the level in Conservative-run areas. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. I'm Callum MacDonald. Thanks very much for being with us this week. Today we're going to examine, well, why on earth we're talking about coalition governments again? In the aftermath of the local election results, we'll do a bit more processing of what they show us, what can we extrapolate, what do we understand, we'll let you hear Keir Starmer not answering questions from Beth Rigby, the Sky News political editor, and we'll take you inside the formation of a coalition. Indeed... The 2010 coalition. We'll be hearing later in the podcast from Polly McKenzie, who was chief policy advisor for the Lib Dems in 2010, running around Whitehall, trying to get the coalition government off the ground. Polly will literally take us into some of the meetings, inside some of the conversations that were happening, to see if we're all being a bit naive, actually, when we're throwing around the idea of Sir Keir Starmer entering a coalition with either the Lib Dems or indeed the SNP. One of them, he has ruled out. The other one, well, he wouldn't really answer. Uh, we'll let you hear all of that and we'll get some analysis from Polly as well. Of course, on the podcast today, Kirsty Buchanan, former special advisor to Theresa May when she was Prime Minister, is with us. And first of all, with Kirsty, let's just work out exactly where things stand after last week's local elections.
3: Yeah, there's absolutely no doubt that the uh, local election results were were utterly dire for the Conservatives. They had uh, tried a spot of expectation management by saying, "Oh, you know, we could lose up to one thousand seats." well of course, privately they were, you know, their worst case scenario was braced around the sort of seven hundred mark. Uh, in the end, they lost one thousand uh, and sixty three, and Labour had a good night. Uh, no, Keir Starmer is right to be delighted with the result. They picked up 537 seats, uh, 22 councils, they've got some key marginal councils uh, in the bag now, like Swindon and Medway and Stoke, but they're not making as much headway, perhaps in the red wall as they would like to see. And I haven't heard a sophologist in the UK yet that thinks that Starmer's claim that they're on track to be, uh, you know, to, to secure a majority in the next election is right. Actually, uh, most election gurus and polling experts have been doing this for you know decades. Have said, well, you know, on the basis of this, if you uh, converted this into what you call a projected national share, then Labour would would be around thirty five percent of the vote. So there'd be nine points ahead of the Conservatives, uh, which would be enough probably to secure them. Uh, as the largest party but not to give them an outright majority at the next election they'd be short on the basis of this re- these results by 28 seats that's quite a that's quite a shortfall and just to kind of put this in perspective you know uh, the 97 landslide Tony Blair it was a 10.2% swing away from the Conservatives to Labour it happened after 18 years of the Conservatives in power and they'd squeaked that sort of surprise victory under John Major in 1992, you know, you could feel uh, in the air, the atmosphere, this seismic change was coming and you would, you know, that was the unprecedented swing in, you know, post-World War II politics. You'd have to go back to 1945 to find a swing of that magnitude. So you can understand why there's a sort of narrative building around actually, you know, at the moment if you're looking at a party that is going to be perhaps the largest party but not secure an outright majority then what do they need to do do they need to form uh, a specific coalition to to secure the majority they need as we saw with the liberal democrats and the conservatives in 2010 uh would they need uh, an agreement such as uh you know a kind of confidence and Supply uh, agreement, like uh, the Conservatives secured with the DUP, uh, where they kind of vote for your measures, but they they don't have uh, they don't have ministerial roles and they don't have uh, a role of collective cabinet responsibility and a role in government. So there are a number of arrangements that, that that could happen in the event of you know either a hung parliament or a party that falls shy of an outright majority.
2: Well, on some of these themes, let's have a listen to Sir Keir Starmer being interviewed by Sky News political editor Beth Rigby.
4: I know you were about to tell me that this was a superb set of local election results, but I'm here with a bit of a reality check. When you extrapolate out to a general election, you're not winning an outright majority. You're well behind where Tony Blair was in 1995. You must be a bit disappointed by
1: that. This was a very good set of election results for us, and it puts us on course for a Labour majority. And it's not just the numbers, it's where we won. You know, winning in places like Medway... (laughs) We haven't won in Medway since 1998. Dover, we haven't won since 1995. These were key places we Mm. took in the general election of 1997. We can trade seats and areas, so
4: Stockton, you went backwards, Walsall, Dudley, Black Country, you stood still. But the big picture here is that you're giving me a narrative about an outright majority that no-one else is. Literally, no sophologist has looked at these results and said that you are on course for a majority-based on these results? Well, I'm
1: confident we're on course. We've looked carefully at these results. But I also... But no expert this, just, just has agreed
4: with you, Say so
1: that isn't it? Underlying this is the question of why this has happened. And it has happened because we changed the Labour Party. People are looking again at the Labour Party. And also we had an absolute focus on the cost of living. You sat next
4: to Ed Davy at the coronation on Saturday. Is it a man you can do business with? Well, look,
1: I'm going for an outright majority. And I'm often asked, you know, will you do a deal with the SNP? And I've been absolutely clear there are no terms in which we would do a deal with the SNP. I want to push on to a Labour majority. Mm. What about the Lib Dems? Well, look, I'm not answering hypotheticals. So
4: you are ruling out a deal with the SNP on any terms, but
1: you're not ruling out a deal with the Lib Dems? Well, as you know, with the SNP, it's a fundamental difference. I do not believe nope, in the breakup and separation of the United Kingdom.
4: You're ruling out any sort of arrangement with the SNP and you are not doing that with the Liberal
1: Democrats. I'm clear I'm pressing on. I want a Labour majority so government, a that. workable majority.
3: Stalin was not going to, to indulge in this. Last year, interestingly, when he was asked about this last year, he ruled out any kind of coalition and any kind of arrangement with anybody, up to and including Uh, the Liberal Democrats. Now, he's um, unsurprisingly rode back from that. So whilst obviously uh, he is uh, still ruling out uh, any coalition with the SNP, and that obviously makes sense. Labour needs to make significant inroads uh, against the SNP at the general election if it's going to secure the kind of seats that it needs to, to secure, secure itself as the largest party. Uh, and it needs to be seen as the unionist party, so they don't want you know, the anti-SNP votes to, to go to the Conservatives. They want it to go to, to Labour as the unionist party. So he says that there are fundamental disagreements between us and the SNP, which means we could never countenance an agreement. But he was asked this week seven times whether he would rule out any kind of arrangement or agreement or coalition with the Liberal Democrats. And seven times he he dodged it. So uh, that's why that kind of narrative is beginning to uh, beginning to grow around the election. It creates, you know, an expectation that suits both the Liberal Democrats, frankly, and Labour at the moment. So you know that's not going to change. It's an uncomfortable line for Starmer to hold, but it is a sensible one, you know, the public are quite capable of you know, decoding if you rule out one but not the other, then the simple answer to that is, yes, it paves the way for, you know, tactical voting. What you'll probably see is a sort of, you know, concerted effort in the South and the Southwest for the progressive left vote, if you like, to go to the Liberal Democrats. There are something like 80 seats in the country where the Liberal Democrats run Conservatives are close second, so I think this is kind of paving the way for a revival of tactical voting. How good tactical voting is, how successful it is, we shall wait and see. But in a year, we've gone from Labour, you know, struggling to make inroads to being the party that is unquestionably going to secure the next election to back to a hung parliament kind of territory again. So it just proves you know how fluid and frothy politics is at the moment and that nothing is particularly certain and we are you know we are still a year out
2: based then on on what we've seen around the local elections should we be examining what the tories should be preparing for any chance of a tory-led coalition
3: i mean there's every prospect of course that the conservatives could end up as the uh, largest party but shy of a majority i mean you know we are talking about a party that at the moment has um it was 80 wasn't it i think we're now into the sort of 70 something 70 plus seat majority uh, and as we've said look the swing from conservatives to labor that would be needed for labor to secure an outright majority uh would be a kind of you know a, a generational seismic shift in voting patterns which you know, I don't think anybody should underestimate just the scale of the challenge there. So that's why you're seeing, you know, as much as Starmer is hedging his bets with a potential arrangement or a coalition agreement for the Liberal Democrats, CNAC's not ruling it out either. Interestingly, though, one person who is ruling out is Ed Davey. So, you know, he's keeping his counsel on a potential uh, Lib Lab pact, but um, I think he's pretty been clear about Uh, the Liberal Democrats not climbing back into bed uh, with the Conservatives, Um, which is unsurprising because the last time they did that in 2010, it ended uh, disastrously for the Liberal Democrats. They got absolutely spanked at the 2015 election, partly because the vast majority of Liberal Democrat voters see their party as a progressive left party. Um, There are some what we used to call red book Liberal Democrats, and the difference between red book Liberal Democrats and know centrist conservatives is is pretty slim but the vast majority of voters for liberal democrats are you know see themselves as progressive left and a progressive left alternative to labor so i think it was in part that and obviously of course because the liberal democrats uh, to secure that coalition agreement with david cameron's conservative government uh, jumped uh, their probably their single biggest manifesto promise which was to abolish tuition fees Uh, It was one of the most spectacular U-turns in modern history and, by gosh, they paid the price for it. So, uh, look, you know, I I think we see both the main parties hedging their bets because this election could go either way, right? We've gone from, um, you know, it being uh, absolutely Labour's to win and the Conservatives, you know, to lose and Labour being 20 points ahead of the Conservatives you know, as bad as the Conservative conference was last year, you know, you went to the Labour conference and you couldn't move for corporates that were at the Labour conference uh, because it was seen as all but a done deal, you know, a majority Labour government. Now we're back in a, you know, in a kind of very much it could go either way territory. Privately, uh, both sides will be prepping for this, but publicly they'll both be saying, both Labour and the Conservatives will be saying, You know, they are concentrating on securing an outright majority. And that is the line that we will mostly hear ad nauseum between now and 24.
2: In a few moments, we'll consider more about the coalition with Polly McKenzie, who was with Nick Clegg, was a Lib Dem advisor, indeed was policy uh, chief policy advisor with the Lib Dems during the formation of the coalition. But first with Kirsty, I just want to understand, would we be... Would we be chewing over these results more if the coronation hadn't, in inverted commas, got in the way?
3: Sometimes politics is just about timing and a bit of luck, frankly. And, you know, as bad as the uh, results were for the Conservatives, they did get lucky. This happened on the Friday and on the Saturday we swung into the coronation. The coronation swept aside what might have been a, a momentum gathering behind this uh you know how bad is it do the conservatives need to change tack, etc um and all that has been swept away and richie Sunak's team has been clear that they are going to stick with their five priorities what they call the people's priorities i won't list the mad nauseum for uh for everyone again um the challenge again you know remains that if you have clear priorities and you bang that drum between now and the election then you have a delivery issue at the next election so i'm sure they'll be able to point to some figures that say things are going in the right direction but if people don't feel it uh, then they won't vote for it Um, and labour have got a compelling uh, compelling argument for change uh, because after what will then be 14 years of conservative government i think uh, you know entropy and exhaustion sets in with the electorate so look the upshot of it was uh of the local elections was the conservatives had a very very bad night worse than they thought worse than they'd kind of expectation managed brett for but the votes didn't all go to labor they went to independence they went to labor they went to green they went to liberal democrat candidates so actually your projected national share if you converted what happened in the local election pretended it was a general election with all the kind of caveats that you know quite a lot of people in local elections vote on local issues they don't vote on national ones but that would leave labor 9 points ahead of the conservatives on 35 uh, liberal democrats on 20 and others on 19 and herein lies the point you know there's 19% of people here who voted for others right that those people will mostly convert to uh, one of the main parties so there's a lot to play for here still uh, I think everybody is rightly in a kind of territory now where, you know, we don't see uh, we don't see Labour as a majority government as a as a foregone conclusion, and we never should have. Frankly, the the scale of the challenge uh, is a historic one for Keir Starmer, um, and as I've said, uh, ad nauseum, I think you know the public aren't sold on Starmer. The support for him is broad, but it's shallow. And Rishi Thunak has done, uh, and his team have done a great job of steadying the ship and creating the right impression again after a disastrous year for the Conservatives last year that the grown-ups are in charge again.
2: I suppose that doesn't negate the grumbling from some in the Tory party. What do you make of that?
3: One thing we do know is that, you know, the the people don't vote for uh, divided parties. So if that grumbling becomes louder and uh, people can see a conservative party that hasn't got its act together and isn't prepared to row in the same direction as their leader, then they won't vote for it. Um, so there are you know, a multitude of challenges, both for Starmer uh, in terms of the scale of the swing that is needed and the fact that he isn't the kind of charismatic leader that, that may convince people um, and that you know, that, that most focus groups and polls actually show on balance that 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 SUNAC has the edge over Starmer. Uh, but also, you know, SUNAC has a mountain to climb in terms of delivery. You know, if you set out priorities that are clearly about delivery and big delivery stuff, we're talking about, you know, cutting inflation and stopping small boats and reducing NHS lists you know waiting lists these are you know the 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 small neat pledges but the actual outcomes of them are huge and the chances that you could deliver in any meaningful sense that you would feel it on the ground by next year is an enormous challenge so it's you know not surprising that you know both the main parties you know at this stage of the game the upshot of the local elections is well it shows that you know everything's still to pay for
2: On all of this, I just want to borrow a bit of analysis actually from Professor Sir John Curtis from the University of Strathclyde. You'll know for being the man who can analyse polls like no other. He was speaking to the other podcast as part of the family here. Hollywood Sources is what it's called, obviously with a focus on Scottish politics. And this week we had an exclusive poll which was outlining how the SNP and indeed other parties are faring ahead of the next general election. The idea of coalition and the influence of the SNP and the relationship to the Labour Party with the SNP and the Lib Dems, all of that came up. Have a listen to what Sir John had to say.
0: You've got to uh, go beyond the immediate reaction to the general election. I mean, there is no doubt that uh, the Labour Party will uh, basically attempt to form a minority administration and they will dare both the SNP and the Liberal Democrats to bring them down. but you now need to remember your history of the October 1974 Parliament. OK, well, <laughs> po- po- point one is I mean, a lot of Labour people say, well, of course, we will be able to call another election at a time of our own choosing and be able to get an overall majority. That's what Harold Wilson tried in October 1974. And essentially, the stratagem failed. And by 1976, when John Stonehouse went for a rather long swim off a of Florida beach, <laughs> um, the Labour Party lost its majority. But then also remember what happened for a long time uh, in the 74 to 76 Parliament. The Conservatives were not willing to try to bring the government down. Until, until we reached a position in the opinion polls where it's perfectly clear that if the government was brought down and we were to have a general election, then the Conservatives were willing to bring that government down. And that's the point at which the Labour Party was forced to negotiate with Liberal, their Liberal Party, the Lab-Lib Pact. So the crucial thing is not necessarily what happens immediately after election. It's what happens when a minority Labour administration is in trouble and cannot contemplate the prospect of going to the country. And then they will face, and it may be a fascinating choice, do they do a deal with the Democrats, which might mean proportional representation, because their price is also a very high price for Labour, or is it to do a deal with the SNP um, uh, over independence? And uh, that's the point at which the pressure would exist. It's not immediately after the election, it's if that minority administration gets into trouble, such that going into the country is no longer an option.
2: Well, that tees us up ever so nicely for getting behind the scenes on how a coalition government works. I think one of the things to explore here is we're throwing this idea around as though it's some sort of easy, you know, easy go-to, an easy option, or some sort of predictable thing as you'll hear from Polly McKenzie in the next few minutes, that's not necessarily the case. Stay with us, we'll be right back. Now, far be it from us to advertise political party conferences, but one of the major political parties is heading to Liverpool in 2023 for theirs. Hang on a minute. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident, excellent hotels in exceptional locations, Now, I've just been checking and I can actually confirm that The Resident has one of its excellent hotels in the exceptional location of Liverpool. Phil, who stayed there in February, says, the location is perfect for shopping, restaurants, pubs and clubs, all within two minutes walking, and yet the hotel itself was very quiet. That sounds ideal for politicals for party conference, or if you're on a leisurely visit to Liverpool, for example, stay at The Resident. To book your stay, click residenthotels.com. Let's welcome then to Whitehall sources, Polly McKenzie, who was chief policy advisor for the Lib Dems when the coalition government in 2010 was being formed. She can take us behind the scenes on what on earth it's like and how on earth it happens.
5: Life as a Liberal Democrat advisor always involves planning out for your MP or spokesman, whoever, exactly what they're going to say when the media ask them would you do a deal with Labour or the Conservatives? Who do you prefer, Labour or the Conservatives? If the Liberal Democrats didn't exist, who would you join, Labour or the Conservatives? So at that level, you're always thinking about your stance with relation to the other political parties. And the Liberal Democrats in 2010, we had written a manifesto that very explicitly had only four policies on the front cover. And and that was actually an attempt to help answer that question, to say... Well, whatever happens, our priorities are the four things on the front of the manifesto. And so whatever the election, um, we will be fighting to secure those priorities. Um, I mean, tuition fees wasn't on the front page, which is one of those things that at the time felt like it was us being very clever about saying we weren't prioritizing tuition fees. But I don't think it quite sank in with the, with the voters. Um, and, and so at that level, everyone was talking about coalition all the time. But on the inside, I don't think we expected that to happen at all. It was much more about the story we would tell about why you should vote Liberal Democrat than a sense of genuinely in detail preparing for coalition negotiations. Um, And and I discovered, uh, you know, later after we were in government that they had done uh, war games under the leadership of Jeremy Haywood um, and and Gus O'Donnell, the kind of the, the top civil servants, war games about whether the parties could possibly agree a coalition and they'd done days of these things and they had concluded that it was not possible that any coalition would ever be formed um so the civil service were very much caught by surprise as well they'd done sort of cursory uh preparations but they were not expecting it to go that way at all
2: yeah was there ever a feeling in the run-up of we we could actually we could inherit quite a lot of or we could be uh, what's the word? I suppose we could we could end up with quite a lot of power and influence here. Either we al- we allow a government to be formed or we step away from it and say, no, actually, this is a minority government um, or the whole thing collapses and we need to go t- for an election again. I just wonder how those scenarios were playing out in in your own minds the, during the election campaign.
5: So, I mean, obviously I can't speak for everybody else, sure. but it certainly wasn't dominant discussion uh, around uh, in the in the rooms that I was in it, it became very much the conversation once the election was uh was over we just didn't expect to hang parliament actually um and you know the liberal democrats got uh you know I think a couple of million more votes but lost seats it was a sort of perfect storm of terrible uh a terrible outcome really um and and but once you start to think about, OK, the country needs a government, and, you know, this was at a time when riots in Greece, uh, kind of fiscal crisis all over the shop, that sense of, um, I guess, Spider-Man-like, right? Great power and therefore great responsibility was very apparent in the, the sort of the 72 hours after the election, um, during which I and most of my colleagues slept about about four of them. <laughs>
2: Oh gosh, uh, let's let's move to that phase then, because I remember being at that point just a news and politics nerd. And sitting at my desk in my bedroom, and I had the radio on, I had a TV, I brought a TV in and put it on my desk so I could watch things unfolding. And the sense was people running all around central London, around Parliament, around Whitehall, from office to office. And from my point of view, the journalists kind of gathering outside various offices, various buildings, this person's gone in, this person's come out, what does this mean? And it all, it all going a bit mad. Um, in your sleep-deprived state, what do you remember of, of the immediate <laughs> aftermath?
5: A lot of that. So um, Nick Clegg came down from Sheffield um, and arrived, I don't know, probably sometime mid to late morning and did a sort of speech outside Cowley Street. And then we we went into the, the, the Lib Dem headquarters. I remember we were in... Um, one of the big sort of it's a very sort of old fusty dusty kind of building with like wood paneling and stuff so uh we had a whiteboard uh we're you know modeling out scenarios and there was a group of people who nick had appointed previously again slightly theoretically really but as as the as the negotiating team and then i um uh, Alison sutty now baroness sutty she was the sort of uh I can't remember what her job title was, but she was sort of operationally coordinating us. Uh, and I and my colleague uh, Chris Saunders were working on the kind of the policy detail, having been the people who'd basically you know, written all the details of the manifesto. And we just talked through all of the options. Then a couple of civil servants turned up, um, sort of sent to us to help us plan and, and discuss things. Um, we got um, obviously approaches. David Cameron, the first, the first thing that happened was David Cameron gave a speech in which he made, uh, in his words, though I think Steve Hilton wrote them for him, a big, open and generous offer to the Liberal Democrats, and 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 we agreed to kind of open negotiations, and the civil servants supported that. Um, uh, we went over to the Cabinet Office um, and had basically a series of quite lengthy meetings with the the sort of the conservative counterparts. And I remember very distinctly, Oliver Letwin brought biscuits. And they're those sort of short cakey things. I think they're called Viennese something or other. And there's like chocolate in the middle. Um, And every time, every time I see those biscuits, I like, I have flashbacks to coalition negotiations. Um, And we talked to a bunch of stuff. Uh, It was one of the, we started with the easy things. With the expectation of moving on, to, which is a kind of a well-worn sort of diplomatic negotiation tactic. Uh, so we talked about, you know, green energy, where actually, you know, Cameron was a big thing for him. Um, and we we remitted tuition fees or nuclear power to, to kind of later conversations. And, of course, electoral reform. And that... Uh, and and yeah and but we every day we had to have a meeting with the parliamentary parties so the the liberal democrats in parliament and in the lords and at the time you know fifty or so in parliament in in the commons and I, I don't know how many in the lords, uh, so we had these big briefing sessions and so there was a lot of walking around yeah walking from the cabinet office walking back to Cowley Street. Walking over, chased by press, into the, those big meetings were held in Westminster Hall, one of the one of the sort of secondary debating chambers um, in Parliament, and yeah, I have I have these sort of flashes of memory, like of you know saying to Nick, "We've just got to do a coalition with the Conservatives." At one point, because um, and I, I can't quite remember where we were, you know, in terms of the layers of things at that point, but I just remember just a you know really distinct visceral memory but exactly where i was standing exactly which bit of stone we were next to which bit of corridor um and you know we 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 were approached by the labour party as well obviously particularly after cameron had sort of said we can't do anything on on av brown stood down i remember he and he and nick had a call at one point i think nick went through a tunnel to meet somebody somewhere one of those secret Whitehall tunnels um and, and what was fascinating is that the, the sort of the offer that came from Downing Street was not big, open and generous at all. It was like, we'll carry on with the Labour Party's stuff and then we'll have a, a review of local government, a review of electoral reform, a review of something else. You know, it was it, it in comparison to the kind of the flexibility the Conservatives were showing, completely, completely different. Um, and And that made it very difficult to kind of push forward with that. Uh, but when Brown stood down, Cameron, I think, sort of managed to use that as leverage to get his party to agree to the referendum. And that was kind of a tipping point for us, being able to get it through those parliamentary parties. That fi- The final vote for it was um, was in a uh, local government house on Smith Square. So, again, assembled parliamentary parties, a bunch of onlookers... I've got a photograph of Paddy Ashdown raising his hand to vote for it. He gave a brilliant speech. I mean, it was Paddy Ashdown. It was clear to people that, that this was an opportunity, but also a, a responsibility to provide good government, mm-hmm. um, which we believed that we did. Um, I think it was certainly better than the government that followed after 2015, but that doesn't wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But But it was a kind of a commitment to that, you, know, you don't go into politics to just make speeches and shout at people. That part's sometimes quite fun, but um, you know the the Liberal Democrats had waited eighty years to have any chance of not whizzing around in ministerial cars like that's the parody version. The opportunity to actually get things done, um, mm-hmm. and 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 that's why in the end they the, the parliamentary parties voted for it. That happened over in uh, Smith Square at local government house, and. Um, Paddy Ashdown gave a brilliant speech, as was his habit, about about the scale of that opportunity. Really, um, and and there was a you know not unanimous vote, but a very solid vote in favour of it. Um, and this the scary moment then was uh, my colleague Chris and I went upstairs to I don't know some some back room, and he got a call from the Treasury officials, um, which suddenly felt very serious because they said well it's just been announced in the coalition agreement right that we're going to increase capital gains tax uh we need to take some uh anti-forstalling measures in order to uh minimize the tax implications of this and you're like oh (laughs) you know Uh, you know chris like a brilliant economist like super clever guy one of my favorite like colleagues Mm. of the time and and he knew everything about policy and about tax system but but it's so different to be announcing a government policy and it like he just sort of blanched a bit and 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 i did too it just felt like oh god this is serious and that's when we decided we needed to go home to get some sleep before we uh actually
2: did anything the next day yeah that's it's so fascinating because it it strikes me you know what you were saying about the interest of good government and policy making and all of that absolutely i think people can see that in terms of it's a noble endeavor but objectively it it strikes me that this is perhaps not the best way to 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 form a government with 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 lots of sleep-deprived people having to run around the streets and and really sort of last-minute haggle over various policy things and I get that that was the nature of the beast but I wonder if in hindsight there's a kind of mm, I'm not sure I'm not sure this is the best way no, to I mean, do this
5: No, it's terrible. Um, <laughs> so I, I mean, I agree with that. The, the reality was mm. both uh, the acute situation uh, in terms of the markets. Uh, and again, that can be overblown. But we, you know, we, we've we learned with Liz Trust that it is, in fact, possible to spook the markets uh, with bad government. Um, so that, that wasn't it wasn't nonsense for us to care about the need for providing some constancy and certainty, particularly as, you know, w- we're not used to this. You know, sure, in Belgium, they can happily spend nine months negotiating the details of a coalition agreement. We we in the UK don't have a habit of that, and people were nervous and frightened, and people like you were, yeah, absolutely, like glued to their television, and journalists were chasing us around the street because it was minute by minute interesting. I agree that it would be better if it was a bit less interesting, a bit less yeah. kind of crisis laden, <laughs> um, and because we then we then we then spend the next weekend basically writing um, the the more deep. So there was a sort of initial agreement and then we wrote a more detailed kind of coalition plan for government which which Cameron and Clegg launched um uh, I don't know a few days a few days later mm. uh, and 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 that was also negotiated in a bit of a a bit of a rush to be honest we just we, we, we just said we'd review some stuff where we couldn't agree and figured we'd we'd fix it later much better to go about it slowly but it's funny because what I thought you were going to say was something different which is that um it, it must, it might have felt noble at the time, which it did. But in retrospect, it feels like just crushingly stupid politics, mm. right, to, to dip your hands in the blood and guts of a government that had to deal with a, a massive deficit, uh, you know, that was that was signed up to uh, an agenda that was going to be really, really difficult politically, even if it was the right thing, which is, of course, debatable. And, and the Liberal Democrats paid you know yeah. an extraordinary price for it um again, Paddy Ashdown again is the person who really sticks in my mind. I remember you know after the election in 2015 mm. going to a different headquarters building. um we'd moved by then because we didn't have any money, so we didn't downsize, Uh, to and um Paddy gave a, a, a speech uh, to the assembled staff, and he said, "Why would anyone act?" to do the best thing for their country ever again. Mm. And, and that is exactly how we felt. Of course, I mean, you know, I don't want to, like, overstate it. Like, the Liberal Democrats, like any political party, uh, full of faults, um, the government from 2010 to 2015 made plenty of mistakes, was definitely not perfect, but, but to have been obliterated when the Conservatives were able to get a majority on the basis of decisions that we had shared um, was really difficult to wear. And so, if you know, I think forward to the potential, will there be another coalition? It's very hard to imagine the smaller party ever agreeing to it again, because the DUP showed us a different example when Theresa May was short of a majority, was a smaller party, but they basically just uh, uh, (laughs) blackmailed the government into giving Mm. them a billion pounds here and there and got, A completely different situation where they got none of the blame and a few billion pounds for Northern Ireland it does is it right to form a coalition government in which responsibility is shared but blame can be landed on the smaller party like why would why would you do that again
2: yeah that's a good point do you think then with with all of that in mind that conversations this week about you know really pressing Keir Starmer on you know, will you enter a coalition with the SNP? And he says, no. Will you enter a coalition with the Lib Dems? And he doesn't answer. Do you think there's almost a weird, blasé, nonchalance around the implications of what that question actually means?
5: Yeah, I think it's really fascinating that he's chosen not to rule it out. Um, I don't really see why the Liberal Democrats would agree to it. I also don't think it's in Keir Starmer's interests either, he probably, even if he were in a minority position, could just bluster his way into being the Prime Minister because, no, I mean, call that bluff. Like, the SNP aren't going to vote for a Conservative Queen's speech if they haven't got a majority. The Liberal Democrats aren't. You know, they've been really clear about ruling it out. I I can understand why you might want to sort of do a bit of a gentle dance with them as, uh, you know, Blair did pre-'97. And, you know, there was... A, a real effort to woo to woo the liberal democrats and to keep them on side there won't be a formal pact before the election by the stretch of the imagination but you can imagine some uh local tactical voting being kind of enabled if it possibly can it just why why i, I really can't get my head around why he's uh not wanting bully out except that i guess he thinks he might need it yeah. i don't think I don't, I don't think he will. I think actually both parties would probably be better off just doing ad hoc deals on individual issues.
2: That is Polly Mackenzie, who was chief policy advisor for the Lib Dems when the coalition government in 2010 was being formed. I wonder what you make of that. Are we, are we talking up the prospect of a coalition government too readily we need to actually really consider what that means in a bit more detail before throwing it around Uh, email us, we'd love to include your emails on next week's episodes, you can email hello at whitehallsources.com thanks so much for being there this week it's always a pleasure to speak to you and to drop into your podcast feed, make sure you check out Holyrood Sources as well, if you'd like a Scottish political digest, it is there for you, just search for Holyrood Sources thanks to Kirsty Buchanan as well always lovely to have Kirsty on Uh, and we will speak to you again very very soon we we'll